Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn with me this morning to our text which comes from the Gospel of Mark as we will be bringing to close the sixth chapter. So Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. So Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Now throughout these first six chapters, we see Jesus constantly on the move. The sixth chapter alone begins with Jesus coming into His hometown of Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And when he's rejected there, what are we told? He went around to the other Galilean villages. Now as the chapter draws to a close, Jesus and his disciples come to Gennesaret, which is a small triangular plain just south of Capernaum. And we're told in verse 56 that even still he continued to move to villages, cities, and the countryside. Now, what all of Jesus' travels ought to demonstrate for us is that Jesus was a very available figure. Right? Jesus didn't just sit up and hide in a palace somewhere, or nor did He resign Himself to His office all day. Jesus is what we might call an itinerant preacher. This word itinerant just means traveling from place to place. And so, Jesus is just traveling from place to place preaching the Gospel, not only to major cities and big cities, but He's even going to small towns and villages. And because of His many journeys, His name has spread, and it's spread fast, so that people have heard of what He is proclaiming and the mighty works that He has done. And so we see here in verse 55 that as soon as Jesus comes upon the shore, that people come and are bringing to Him their sick. They know because He travels so much that He might not be there long. And so they quickly grab all those who are unable to make it to Jesus in their own strength and they, they bring them. We're told they place them in the marketplaces. Just lay them down so that if Jesus walks by, perhaps He might heal them or at the very least, they might be able to reach out and touch His garment and be healed. Now this certainly tells us something about how the people view Jesus, doesn't it? Because we've probably all known people. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it was a teacher in school or an, an employer. But we all knew some person or people that you couldn't just walk up to at any time and interrupt them, could you? They weren't very friendly and inviting people. They didn't like being disturbed. And so you had to make sure that you had permission first or you only did it at a certain time. But we see with Jesus that this is not the case. People knew that they could approach 
Jesus. He wasn't a celebrity who had bodyguards keeping everyone at bay. Right? The people had heard, if not, had already seen for themselves how kind and loving and compassionate Jesus was towards those who came to Him in need. Jesus, as we have seen throughout the Gospel, has had great sympathy on the people. And we see that put on display here in verse 56 alone, where we're told that as many as laid hands upon Jesus' garment were healed. And this sympathetic, compassionate, kind, loving, gentle disposition that we read about that Jesus displays, He continues to display today towards us. We can attest to that, can't we? But this is because Jesus has not changed. Right? The same Jesus who made Himself available to these people likewise makes Himself available today. The same Jesus who was quick to heal those who came to Him in need is likewise today quick to heal those who come to Him in need. This Jesus whose name and message and works were proclaimed throughout the region likewise today has His name and His message and His works proclaimed throughout the world. Jesus, who made Himself available to the masses in the first century, is no less available to the masses today. And so we have to ask, then why are there so many unregenerate, lost souls dying apart from Christ every day? Well, depending upon who you ask, you might get different answers, but one thing is clear that the problem for unregenerate man is never a lack of information about who Christ is. The problem for unregenerate man is never a lack of availability from Christ's side. In fact, in the story today, we see the great numbers of people that Jesus heals with a great and many variety of sicknesses. You see, the problem or the problem that it seems from our end is getting these people to come to Jesus to understand that the time is short and that opportunities continue to pass them by to be saved as judgment draws near. And so what we want to do today in looking upon this text is really make a plea to sinners to come to Christ. Also in doing so, we want to look at and understand the great urgency that we as believers must have, which I think we lack far too often for the salvation of the unregenerate. And then lastly, we need to remind them and remind ourselves, which we often should be doing, of what Jesus does for those who come to Him by faith. And so we're going to do this under three points this morning. The first point is the recognizable Savior. The recognizable Savior. Point two is bringing sinners to Christ bringing sinners to Christ. And point three is Christ makes good on His promise. Christ makes good on His promise. So point one then, the recognizable Savior. We're told right away that Jesus comes upon the shore, He anchors the boat, He gets off, and immediately people recognize Him. I'm not sure, brothers and sisters, that there are many places that we can go in the world today, say the name of Jesus, and people don't know what we're talking about. I mean, we just got finished celebrating the Christmas holiday, right? Well, it's said that nine of ten Americans celebrate Christmas. Ninety percent of America celebrates Christmas. That's roughly 
297 million people. And that doesn't include the other roughly 160 other countries who likewise celebrate Christmas. And so you literally have billions of people who celebrate Christmas. Now I acknowledge that there's a good chunk of them who are not believers. But whether they believe or not doesn't take away or detract from the fact that we all know what the Christmas narrative is about. Right? You hear it sung in songs. You watch it in movies. You know it's a celebration of the birth of the Incarnate Son. People know the basic story. They know Christmas is the time that we celebrate that Christ comes down right, to save His people from their sins, to die upon the cross, and it begins through the virgin birth. So the majority of the world has heard about Christ. They have basic knowledge of who He is and what He has come to do. Right? If you start to tell people facts about Christ's life without giving him them their name, that they would be able to say, oh, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about Christ. Right? Jesus is very recognizable. I'm not talking about physically recognizable, but I'm talking about people understand who you're speaking about when you talk about Jesus, whether they are believers or not. And we see in our text today as well, Jesus doesn't have a problem being recognized, does He? In fact, He has the opposite problem. He's constantly being recognized everywhere He goes. He can't sleep. He can't rest. He can't eat. He can't pray without being interrupted. People likewise today are quick to recognize and point out that all things that they have come from our Lord's hand. I don't know if any of you have ever watched award ceremonies. If you've ever seen the, the Oscars or the Grammys, right? I remember as a child watching some of those, and the, the first thing you would see when they come up to accept their award, or the first thing they would say is, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because none of this would be possible without Him. I know a lot of people throughout my life who didn't go to church, who didn't practice Christianity, and yet who certainly confessed Christ. They would say that they were believers. And they would also wholeheartedly affirm that everything they had came from the Lord. They recognized that it was because of Christ that they were blessed. But see, this is one of the problems that we see today is that people equate blessings with God's favor. They think that, well, I'm doing well. Look at everything I have. I must be doing something right. People say, I'm well off. I'm in good health. God must be blessing me. And yet they mistakenly equate blessings with the measure of faith they have. As if their faith can somehow be detached from their practice. Like, it's because of my strong faith that I have all these blessings. Although I don't serve God, I don't worship God, I live a life of sin, I don't love God's people. But this is because they don't understand that blessing is not the same thing as faith. They mistake God's common grace with God's special grace. People throughout the Gospel thus far we've seen have been blessed by Christ's power and yet they never believed. We were told this is the reason why Jesus leaves Capernaum to begin with. He was was preaching and He was doing these works but people were only coming to Him to get healed. A lot like people do today. And yet those who believed and who were closest to Jesus died horrific deaths And yet, I don't think anyone would question the faith of the apostles, would they? And so what we need to stop doing is stacking what we perceive as blessings up and using that as a measuring stick to determine the genuineness or the 
veracity of our faith. You see, Jesus is very recognizable. His works are recognizable. He avails Himself to sinners much. But then why do so many depart this life without Him? It is because they do not approach Christ in faith. Right? They do not recognize their condition. They think life is good. Look at all that I have. And so they recognize Him. They acknowledge Him. But they never see themselves as sick. And so they don't lay themselves before His feet. They don't empty themselves of all self-righteousness. Man is in a very sad and dreadful condition. One that we need to be reminded of. Because what has become blatantly obvious is that because of man's blindness and the fact that they don't understand spiritual things, that they don't see the peril that they're in. Right? Sinful man doesn't see the peril they're in because they're spiritually blind. They have no spiritual sense about what is going on around them. This is what Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower, isn't it? He said He spoke in parables so that in seeing they could not perceive and in hearing they could not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, this is what we see going on all around us. People recognizing the name of Jesus. People recognizing His power. People recognizing that everything they have comes from His hand, but not truly recognizing Him until it is too late. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I don't know if any of you have ever been driving down the road and maybe your favorite tune popped on the radio. And so you you crank it up and you bob your head a little bit with it. And after a little time, after a couple of minutes, you look up and in the rear view mirror, there's police behind you and ambulances behind you with the sirens going and the, and the, and the, 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 the sirens and everything flashing. And they're trying to get by you because there's something they're trying to get towards, but you didn't see the signs. You didn't see everything going on because you thought everything was, was going perfectly. Right? You were traveling down that road. You were feeling good. Life was good. But you missed all the signs. You missed the cars pulling over for the police officers. You missed seeing the flashing signs. You missed hearing them because you were so consumed with what you were listening to that you didn't pull over until it was too late. And brothers and sisters, this is what I think it's like for many of the unconverted. Right? They think that life is good. They think they have favor with God. They believe everything is okay, but it's not until it's too late that they will realize that they were never in right standing with God. This is the problem that we see with many of the Jewish people that Paul writes to in his epistles, the Judaizers, right? That they thought they had God's favor. Right? They thought that they were God's people. But what does Paul say in Titus chapter 1, verse 10? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You see, they thought because they had all these many blessings that they had right standing with God like many do today. They said, we have the law. We have Abraham. There must be something special about us. But you see, even though they recognized Jesus as Savior, they believed Him to be the Son of God, the One who takes away the sins of the world. They tried adding things onto Him. And so they never truly truly recognized Jesus. They never truly took hold of Him, laid hold, laid claim of Him as their own Savior, as their own righteousness, which only comes about through genuine faith. And so knowing this, brothers and sisters, what, if anything, can we do? 
What, if anything, can we do? Well, this takes us into point number two, which is bringing sinners to Christ. What is it that we read in verse 55? That when they recognized Jesus, they ran and brought their sick to Christ so that he might be healed. You see, understanding people's spiritual blindness, understanding the brevity of life, understanding that the dwindling opportunities that continue to pass people by ought to cause us to have a great burden upon our hearts for the lost. Right? We understand their condition because we were once there. We understand that they are blind and that they need their eyes open and it only comes about by God's grace through the proclamation of the Word. And yet too often, we are too indifferent to the needs of the ungodly and the unregenerate. But here in our text today, we see the response that we ought to have knowing daily that people are dying apart from Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I understand that we cannot force anyone to believe. Right? We're all aware of that. We all believe in the sovereignty of God. We all know that that principle of faith worked in the heart of man only comes about through the, the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we can do, brothers and sisters, is we can bring the sick and the dying before Christ, so that if He so wills, they may be saved. This is what Jude exhorts the saints to in Jude verse 22 and 23, where he says this, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So what is Jude saying? Jude is saying there's different approaches that we can take when trying to lay aid to sinners. For those who have perhaps a sensitive conscience, who are pricked by their sin, have mercy on them and be gentle with them as you lead them to Christ. But for others, we are to save them by snatching them out of the fire. Now I think that this is a much neglected way that, sinner, that Christians use to lead sinners to Christ. And I understand why that is the case. But this is a method that needs to be used, I think, for many out there in order to convince them of their need for Christ. But I understand why we don't want to use it. We don't want to be off-putting to people, right? We don't want to scare away family members and friends, which is a legitimate concern. But then also we have to remind ourselves what the ends are for these people who do not believe. And then we have to weigh our options. Is it better to be off-putting or to sit idly by as those whom we love day by day get closer and closer to the gates of hell? As we stand by, say nothing, and sound no alarm. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, we read this, Open rebuke is better than love concealed. Open rebuke is better than love concealed. Is that the mantra that we live by here? Or do we live by the world's mantra, which is openly love everything no matter what and conceal any rebuke that you have? I was recently reading a story online of a a famous athlete who has a young son who's about 13 years of age who now identifies as a girl. And in this interview, this athlete is saying that 
It is because of unconditional love that he accepts his son, whom he calls his daughter, in whatever way, shape, or form he wants to identify. And what happens, right? When this article comes out, he's praised for it. He's this great father, right? This is how all fathers should be. And as I listened to it, and as I read it, I sat stunned and shocked. And I thought to myself, if, if unconditional love is this, is help leading my son to destroy both body and soul in hell, then count me out! Then count me out! But we know that this definition of unconditional love is, is not a true definition of unconditional love. It's the, the world's definition of unconditional love. For this father ought to love his child no matter the case. But loving him is pointing out his sin, directing him to Christ, not accepting his sin, right? pointing him to Christ. That is the truly loving thing to do. But how many of us here act in the exact same fashion towards our family members and friends that this athlete did? How many of us know family members and friends who live openly in sin, but for the sake of peace and a good relationship, keep silent? Well aware that they are headed for eternal damnation. How many of us have children or grandchildren who live in open sin? Children or grandchildren who live with their girlfriends and boyfriends and engage in inappropriate acts prior to marriage, and yet we say nothing about it? How many of us have friends who aren't Christians? Perhaps those whom we grew up with. And for the sake of maintaining that tight friendship, even though we know they live wickedly, we say nothing. Brothers and sisters, you do them no favors, and in fact you do them great injury and harm by not saying anything. Just like those in our story today, we need to take all of those who are sick, and bring them to the feet of Christ before it's too late so that they may be healed. And so you ask, well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, as difficult as it may seem, there comes a time that we must just convince them of their dreadful condition, snatching them, as Jude says, from the fire. And so we do that by letting them know that God stands against them. Not just that they are without God, but that God stands against them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, we're told it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Psalm 34, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What a sobering reality, isn't it? And yet this is something that the unregenerate must come to realize. The same God who created them is the same God who will destroy them. We must likewise warn them they stand under the power of Satan. This is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. He says that they are in the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. And brothers and sisters, you who were once in the same place, do you not have pity for those who are in that place today? If you did, you would likewise inform them that the guilt of their sins weighs heavy upon their head and that the wages of sin is death and that they will 
die in their sins apart from Christ. And that when they die, their sins will not go away. Their sins will not die with them. Rather, their sins will be a great burden and plague upon them for all of eternity. That their sins will go down with them to hell to be their tormentors. We need to inform those that we love that they are enslaved to sin and because of sin, the fires of hell await. You know, we read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? And we read about the furnace that he had reserved for those who would not worship his false gods and would not bow down to the golden image. And we cringe when we read about that. What a terrible punishment that is to be placed in that hot fire. Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? The fires of hell burn a thousand times hotter. How can we sit there and not alert those who are headed there? Even the devil and his demons know this. This is why they believe and they tremble. If you love people, if you love your unregenerate, unbelieving family members and friends, then you must do everything you can to awaken them, to flee their sin, and to reach out their hand that they might touch the garment of Christ and be healed. I'm sure all of of us here would do that for a loved one who is suffering physically, wouldn't we? Who here wouldn't take a family member, an unbelieving mom, dad, brother, sister, son or daughter, to go get medical treatment that they need in order that their life may be spared? And yet, why do we not have that same sense of urgency for those who are spiritually sick? Which is much more important to be healed from that, from any temporal thing we suffer from. I hope, brothers and sisters, we see the urgency that we must have to lead others to Christ. But this then takes us to our third and final point this morning, which is that Christ makes good on His promise. Here is the good news, brothers and sisters. We see here in verse 56 that all who touched Christ's garments were healed. This is good news for those who have yet to be healed spiritually by Christ. For although their present condition is a frightening one, it is important as we lead people to Christ that we impress upon them not only that God stands against them, not only that God is angry with them, not only that they stand under the power of Satan and that their sins weigh heavy upon them, but likewise that in Christ there is opportunity for mercy for all of them. That just as God now stands against them through Christ, God will stand even more by their side and for them that just as they are apart from God right now, that through Christ, He promises to be a God unto them once again. But this only comes through renouncing our sin, renouncing all confidence in ourselves. This comes about through taking the Father to be your Father. Casting yourself in all of your dependence upon Him. Trusting in His fatherly care and provision. Trusting in His providence. It means taking Christ to be your Savior, your Redeemer, and your righteousness. For any of us who are sitting here today, 
You are accepted only through Christ. Christ is the only means to eternal life. It likewise means taking the Holy Spirit to be your sanctifier, to be your comforter, to be your seal of eternal life. It means making God the only portion in life and death. The source of all happiness and the Christian's only hope. But the promise is clear in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We are told this, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Jesus says, come to me all, right? And none will He cast out. Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I ask, has everyone here trusted in that promise? If you have, Christ has made you well, just as He has made these sick well in Gennesaret. And no longer, brothers and sisters, do we have to be ashamed. For although we are wretched men and women, although we have brought condemnation upon ourselves by our sin, God has had great mercy and compassion on us, bathing us in His grace so that those of us who are now in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any more condemnation. The Lord claims us now as His own. He removes sin's stain. He frees us from sin's grip. He gives us a new heart and He makes us His own. And so as we draw to a close then, brothers and sisters, knowing all of this, I ask, where is your heart for the lost? I'm not saying that tomorrow we should all turn in our pink slips, quit our jobs and go pound the pavement. But what I am saying is that each and every one of us can practically do is bring those who we come into contact with daily, weekly, monthly, yearly to Christ by just planting the seed. Planting the seed. I ask, did we not need that for ourselves? Did we not need someone to highlight for us our sin and our need for Christ? And so let us serve Christ being instruments of His righteousness. Let us shine as lights unto this world, bringing sinners to the feet of Christ so that if He may, according to His own power and for His own glory, if He so desires according to His will, draw them salvifically to Himself and grant to them eternal life. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for Your Word. We are thankful, Father, that You have implanted it into the hearts of Your saints. And we pray, Father, that You would use us as Your instruments to proclaim Your Word so that You might implant it into the hearts of sinners today. We ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes to the needs of the ungodly, that we would pay more attention and not be so indifferent to their eternal destination that you would give us hearts 
that long to see them saved and that you would grant to us the will and desire to do all that we can to convince men, women, and children of their need of you. And so, Father, we come before you this day and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.